You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt, or as I'll be called this time, white girl Erin. <laughs> or anytime, really. It's, it fits. It's a moniker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Accurate. It, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. White lady Erin? White person Erin? I'm not sure. Just right. White Erin. It gives me some street cred, maybe. Probably not. I mean, we just talked about you're so metal, so I feel like that's the better <laughs> of your street cred identities. So metal, I can't do an NMR, guys. <laughs> Anyway, this week, we're getting away from Jesus, really far away from Jesus. We bracketed Jesus with porn and now drugs. So it's a good balance. Mm -hmm. This week, we're going to talk about White Boy, which is a 2017 Netflix hit. It was an hour, well, still is an hour and 22 minutes long. It's directed by Sean Reck. Reck? Mm -hmm. Not sure which. So this covers the story of Richard Wershey Jr., also known as White Boy Rick. But don't look up White Boy Rick because then you'll get the movie or the docuseries or whatever the hell the other show was. But we're doing a documentary, not the one with actors. Correct. And also, I, for the longest time until we watched this documentary, now we watched it quite a while ago, but Mm -hmm. I thought he was a character. Like people had referenced him in movies and stuff. And I thought, surely that's just a character that people are referencing but no it's a real actual person right and you'll kind of find out why it was so big how Mm -hmm. it got that way I think somebody later says you don't want a really good moniker if you're a criminal like it really sells well it doesn't (laughs) work well for you as a defendant in a trial perhaps but Mm -hmm. boy does it sell some papers so yeah and records and probably a lot of other stuff too i'm yeah the t-shirt game was just on point uh probably Mm -hmm. is that the still when they had to etch them there just wasn't a printing press at the time i'm thinking it was airbrushed (laughs) (laughs) in the mall (laughs) Mm -hmm. so richard worshi jr white boy rick is michigan's longest serving non-violent offender he went in as a juvenile, which is pretty amazing. This is kind of why this case sticks out so much is that he, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a roller coaster. So mm-hmm. what an amazing case to, to look in from the outside, probably not so <laughs> fascinating from the inside. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, this starts in Detroit in the eighties. And they kind of talk about a little bit about what Detroit was like in the 80s. So Detroit at one point in time was this booming city, manufacturing, car manufacturing, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of jobs, a lot of middle class, working class people. It was a great city. But in the 80s, that was no longer really the case. Mm -hmm. The population had dropped considerably. And... They said, who was it they said later? They said it went from about 2 million people down to 1 million people. And they said current population is about 600,000. And I had to look that up because that seemed 
impossible, but it's true. And for reference, Indianapolis, where we live, has about 880,000 people. And Chicago has about 2.7 million people. So it went from the size of Chicago down to smaller than Indianapolis. That's a huge drop. And a lot of the footage they show in this looked like a war zone. Like everything is decimated, like windows blown out of buildings. It's amazing when you see it. And this is everywhere. It's not like they're showing one part of town. Mm -hmm. It's all over the place. And so it really paints a bleak picture for the people who had to stay. Cause I think the people who had the means left right? and it leaves behind, you know, the people that really didn't have any options. Right. And so what options do they have if they can't work legitimate work? Well, the eighties is also well known for crack. Thank you mm -hmm. government. <laughs> yeah. That's one we'll have to cover some point in time. That's a good documentary too, but yes. So crack was on the rise. They uh, think Nancy Reagan and say no to drugs and hugs, not drugs. And this is your brain on drugs and all that bullshit that didn't work at all. The war on drugs. We lost that. We being the government, not me. I was not, in war. I did the drugs. I was not in a war with them. <laughs> you were literally supporting the drugs. Yeah. If you had to pick a side. Yes. At the time, at the time I was, yes. hundred percent. So yeah, that's where they made their money because that was really the only way to. Mm -hmm. So there are several characters that speak or introduce kind of um, tells the story of white boy, Rick, you have Chris Hansen, who's pretty well known. He's a journalist. This is pre to catch a predator, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. But he has footage. I mean, there were several interviews with Rick during these days. Mm -hmm. um, he has like, you know, jailhouse interviews and stuff like that. So I think it was big news at the time. And so they show a lot of this footage of a very baby faced right? Chris Hansen and a super baby faced white boy, Rick, like mm -hmm. so baby. He was with the, the barest of mustaches. <laughs> yes. Yes. And let's just say that haircut. Mm -mm. It was feathered. It was. I mean, he there were looks. Bangs. It's so lame, right? Like you expect somebody to be, I don't know, flashier or whatever. But he just looks like every kid in the eighties you've ever seen. Yes, I'm like when they're like this mm -hmm. kingpin gets arrested, blah blah blah. You expect you have a picture in your mind. And then he walks out and you're like, that's not it. No, I would say the only really remarkable thing about him is that he has pretty clear skin. Oh, good for him. Yeah. For a teen. Well, right? this is before meth too. So, so you know, <laughs> had he gotten that drug? <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, the, we didn't talk a lot about him sampling his own product. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but we didn't talk about it much. So it's true. That's true. He might not have. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Besides Chris Hansen, there's a guy named Johnny Curry, and he was a cocaine dealer, and he's featured in this quite a bit. He was close to Rick, or Rick was close to him because he was the bigger of the two fish, although, again, what's uh, kind of portrayed in the medium doesn't really line up with that. But, of course, throughout mm -hmm. the telling of the people who were there, they're like, that's not a real thing. 
But I think my favorite fact about him is the FBI estimates that he made up to $200 million in the 80s, like 150 to $200 million in the 80s selling crack. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money today. That's a lot of money. But like triple it to get to today's money, I think, ish. So, yeah. So he's one of our star players. There's a guy named Nathaniel Booncraft, who might be another one of my favorite people. He's an assassin. He talks very openly about it. It's so hard to call an assassin one of our favorite people, but I agree. I agree. I think it's just because he comes across as like, yep, this is who I was. And I don't have anything to hide because he laid it all out for people. I think that there's probably some secrets that he, he's kept because he kind of like says a couple things like, look, I still have some stuff that people don't want me to say. Yep. But again, it's it's so different than a lot of the people we hear from in these documentaries who are like, I couldn't possibly, you know, I bet. but he's just really open about it. And I admire him for that. Yep. They said around the time there were about 800 homicides a year in Detroit. Most of those were probably due to the drug trade. And Rick happened to grow up on the east side of Detroit, which was a notoriously rough neighborhood at this time. It wasn't always that way. Um, His sister said it used to be like this nice, normal working class, you know, neighborhood. And then everyone moved out and crack houses moved in like very quickly. Right. And it seems like Rick's family starts off pretty typical, right? So his mom, his dad, his sister, Mm -hmm. his dad's an interesting cat. He was a drug. No, he was a gun dealer. Sorry, got that switched up just a little bit. Gun dealer, a bit of a hustler, this cat was. Mm -hmm. And I think Rick kind of idolized that or was caught up in that. Probably a little bit of both. I mean, most boys want to hang out with their dad, idolize their dad a little bit. Mm -hmm. So... I think that that was a bit of a gateway for Rick to get into some of this stuff. Yeah. I think what's interesting is, so his parents divorced when he was about five, when Rick was about five, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. both him and his sister Dawn stayed with their father in the house they were living in. At one point in time, I think they said eighth grade, he moved in with his mom for a little bit, spent that year in the suburbs with his mom, and he did really well. He had great grades. He was like top of the baseball team. He was popular, Mm -hmm. but at the end of that period, he still went back to live with his dad. He wanted to go back to his dad. So it would be interesting to talk to him more about like, you know, does he ever think that shit had just stayed here? Maybe none of this would have happened. I think that there were several things that kind of fell together at a weird, there was a lot of weird timing. Mm -hmm. One of those things happened to be that Michigan passes a law called the drug lifer law, which means that if you're caught with 650 grams of cocaine, you are sent away for life. So this is what you were talking about, the war on drugs. This is a direct result of that. And if you've watched a lot of true crime or listened to us at all or whatever, we've kind of talked about these stiff penalties don't really deter people from committing crimes. It's like, well, I could, you know, eat today or I just like the money or whatever, but it's not a great, it's just not a great deterrent for people. And it just doesn't work. Right. I think if jail time prevented crime, the United States would have the lowest crime rate in the world. And since the exact opposite is true, (laughs) we can agree that that's not 
how it works, right? What do we know, though? Right. I think it sounds good to voters. I mean, it's, I think it sounds good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's two-pronged, right? You want to appear if you're running for offices. I'm tough on crime and I've put so many people away and blah, blah, blah. doesn't really matter how just that is. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that really for some time or at all in some cases. Mm. So not great. Nope. There's a man named Coleman Young who is the mayor of Detroit. He seems like a real character. Yeah. He seems... Like, I don't know how he became mayor. Do you think he just killed everyone to get to the top? I mean, he's abrasive. Yeah. I have a feeling that they probably didn't have a great system to begin with. And this just happens to be at the height of this or at the worst time or, you know, for whatever reason, just happened to be recognizable. Because it seems that Coleman is known as corrupt. But there are some people who don't agree with that. Maybe there's not necessarily a direct correlation, but they're like, look... There is a lot of circumstantial evidence to point to the fact that he he was corrupt. So that's a little bit of discussion in in this documentary as well. But I think, to me, it sounds like this person raped this woman. And his ex-girlfriend will be like, well, he was never harsh with me, so I don't believe that happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, if they don't treat me this way, or if I don't specifically see it, then it's not true. And I think there's a whole lot of that going on here with a few different people. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about some of those cases. Mm -hmm. Coleman Young has a niece. Her name is Kathy Curry. She is married to Johnny Curry. I think her main name is Volman. Volson. Volson. That's Mm -hmm. it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So his niece has a police detail, which I'm like, Is that common for a mayor's niece to have a police detail, number one? Especially a mayor's niece that's married to the head of a drug gang, right? Right. So there's some potential conflict of interest. (laughs) So the police detail is known to have been instructed to just let them drug dealers do their thing and... Not interfere, but, like, keep an eye on Kathy, please. Like Keep her safe. Mm-hmm. Right. Separation of church and state. That's what it's kind of... <laughs> that's kind of the mm. vibe you get from this. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Curry says, yeah, like, that's pretty legit. Like, there were all kinds of things that happened that I should have been picked up for. I should have been arrested for. They saw things, like, literally in my car and nobody did anything. So it was a pretty sweet gig, I think, for him. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. We also have Gil Hill, Gilbert Hill, also known as Gil. He mm-hmm. was the Detroit head of homicide, but he also played Eddie Murphy's boss and Beverly Hills cop. So he was like really popular. People love that he was doing his thing in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But he had aspirations to become the next mayor. So he was pretty involved with this mayor And according to Curry, he was involved with the gangs and the drug dealing. And the way they made it sound is it wasn't necessarily to benefit, right? He, they didn't seem to have anything that really said like, listen, I'm going to take a cut of this. You could do whatever you want. I'm going to take a cut. 
but it was mm -hmm. kind of more of a quid pro quo situation. And I'm going to make my life easier. If I do you a favor, you do me a favor and we'll all just live our lives. Right. Yeah. Which I find kind of fascinating. Cause I'm like, if you are a voter in Detroit at this time, I would love to have seen the messages because surely like cleaning up the streets, that feels like a very eighties thing to say mm -hmm. if you're running for mayor. Well, one of the things he was really big on was we're not going to put money into them suburbs until we clean up our city. Right. So mm -hmm. that probably made people who live there feel better. Like, listen, you're not giving money to all these people who have more money to move outside of the city. Right. We're struggling here and you're looking after us. So I absolutely understand why they would feel like he was one of them. Right. Right. I also think it's kind of interesting because he's got, I don't know, political aspirations and he's an actor and he's involved with these gangs, drug dealers. That feels like a lot of stuff for one person. It does feel like a lot of stuff for one person. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can barely do a job that pays me do this podcast for free and actually parent or whatever. So uh, credit to these people who can do it all. Right. He probably had a wife at home taking care of shit. <laughs> you're, you're right. He probably had a stay at home spouse. That's true. That's what all the greats do. That's what we're learning. I don't know. I just find it very fascinating that this guy could keep a hand in all of those. How many Beverly Hills cops were there? Two, three, something like that. Maybe it wasn't. I've seen one. I know there are more, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. So I think one of my favorite facts of this whole to do is, um, so Johnny Curry gets sent away, right? Eventually they get some kind of dirt on him that they can't, somebody has to prosecute somebody for, mm -hmm. and he is sent to the big house. So there's a raid at his house mm -hmm. where Kathy is living while he's gone. And, uh, would you like to tell us what happens at that raid, Aaron? Well, they, they bust in. And lo and mm -hmm. behold, I mean, his wife, Kathy's there in bed with one white boy, Rick, who ranges anywhere in age in this whole documentary from 14 to 17. And I'm hoping it's on the higher <laughs> end. Like, Absolutely. I think they say 17, but I'm like, <laughs> ew, Kathy, ew. She was stunning too. So she was stunning. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm like girl standards get some right i mean he must have flashed all the money in front of her face to hypnotize her <laughs> it's just i i don't know because yeah they were like dating or something and and keep in mind well we haven't talked about it much yet but rick was part of johnny's crew so and it's funny because johnny is like yeah i knew whatever i was locked up she was getting hers i'm like good for you sir Good for you. I mean, maybe 30 years gave him some perspective, but I want to <laughs> guess that he didn't take it real well at the time. Right. We should make sure that he hadn't had her killed and then later been like, well, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, I don't know how old she is, but I'm like mid twenties. Was she I would think. 30? I mean, I would think hopefully mid twenties. Yeah. I'm like, how good was his game? Because Anyway, didn't seem like he had a whole lot of game from conversations, but there was something there. Apparently I didn't think so either. I was like, he's a mastermind. No, no, he's not. <laughs> uh, maybe that was part Good of his stuff. charm was that he was unassuming 
And so people are like, well, he couldn't do anything. And there we Just are. Potentially bone your wife. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. The, what did I call it earlier? <laughs> Michigan life or law was repealed in 1998. So there's no more life without parole for nonviolent crimes. Um, so there is a point in time where a lot of people that were convicted with this, uh, with this law, there was evaluation of their cases. Some were, I'm not going to say they were let go, but it was reevaluated, right? So mm-hmm. potentially those life sentences were reduced. And that is also part of the story. So I want to mention that now. Let's say the problem with Rick being caught in bed with Kathy and things like that is the mayor, who is the uncle, feels like this is a problem because they're trying to call Rick a drug lord. Rick knows more than he should, blah, blah, blah. So then he was busted for eight kilos of cocaine. Eight kilos is more than 650 grams. You don't have to do the math. It's more. So he did get the life sentence. And this was, I believe, mm-hmm. in 1987. We probably have the date later, but this is in like 1987. So w- when they repealed that law, you know, 10, 11 years later, people, like you said, who had been convicted should have been given the chance for parole. But that wasn't the case <laughs> with Rick. I think he had one chance for parole. Right. That was like 2003. So the press referred to him as a drug kingpin. The best part is watching like Johnny Curry. And, oh, what was the guy's name? The um, uh, Nate Craft, the serial killer. He wasn't a serial killer. Yes. Sorry. He was a hitman. Mm-hmm. Two different things. I mean, I don't know what the distinction between those two things is. Money, When you get maybe? paid. <laughs> <laughs> either way. Either way, they were both like, kingpin of what? Have you seen this kid? What the fuck? Who, do they think we reported to him? It was hilarious and adorable at the same time. Mm-hmm. But then we meet Greg Schwartz, who's an FBI agent, and he's like, I'm really sorry to tell you, but the legend of White Boy Rick is just not true. None of it's true. Right. But again, this is so heavily hyped during his trial mm-hmm. that people believe, and I mean, it is still in the consciousness that he was, I think, quoted by the judge at the time, William Hathaway, mm-hmm. that he's worse than a mass murderer. Um, so it worked so well that it really negatively impacted his image. And I think, you know, bought him some more jail time. Well, they essentially blamed him for the entire downfall of Detroit. I mean, they gave him credit for things that no one person could be responsible for. It's amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. If global warming were a thing, then they would have blamed him for that too, but a little early. Well, they'd have to believe it was true, but I agree with you. Yes. (laughs) So what does Rick say happened? So we do talk to Rick throughout this. He is talking over the phone and that there's no in-person interviews, but he's talking over the phone and that. So mm-hmm. what does he say happened? So he talks a little, a lot about having been recruited very young at age of 14 as an FBI informant. And that comes about because again, his dad is a hustler. His dad is a gun dealer and he was also an informant for the FBI. Mm-hmm. So we talked to a guy named Herm Groman. That coat, man. It's a velvet coat, like a velvet blazer. And I'm like, who styles you, sir? Well done. I would wear it. I would too. So Herm talks a lot about, he was a handler. He was kind of the, the people that some of these informants reported to and 
having been uh, working with a father, in a lot of the situations, they would meet up with the dad and be talking and Rick would be there. Mm-hmm. They would ask the dad a question and dad would look at Rick and Rick would be like, yeah, these guys are in charge of this or this is where this goes down. I mean, he seemed to be really informed <laughs> about what was going on on the streets. Like, so he had good information that the FBI was interested in and really that was coming through the dad and they just kind of cut to the chase and recruited Rick to do it directly at 14. Yeah. He made a comment. Her made a comment like senior was using junior for money. Yeah. He was willing to sell his son out in theory, use his son to give, get information for the FBI for money. That speaks volumes about his parenting style. I do think it's interesting though. Cause they, they do mention a couple times that his dad was really bright. Like he was an inventor. I don't know if he actually ever invented things, although he did hold some patents, right? He did, but I don't know for what. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and his big scheme was to play both sides. So he would line things up for the guns and then tell the FBI all the stuff. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of leveraging quite a bit. So is it really a surprise that he would leverage his son? I think, it's hard to believe, but that seems to be what has happened according to, you know, more than just Rick. Right. Right. What would have been mm-hmm. interesting is if he was selling the guns to the gangs, the FBI raided them, got the guns. If they then gave the guns back to Rick senior to sell again. Wow. That would be a perfect scheme. What a loop, right? Yeah. Yeah. It started small. It started with, you know, the officers driving him around town and him pointing out people and places. And this is where the, deals normally take place and stuff like that just kind Mm of real small but over time they said that he made about $35,000 from the police that's about 100 grand today so for a 14 year old kid can you imagine can you imagine all the stupid shit my kid would buy let me just put this in perspective my kid is 14 the idea of him doing any of this he has zero street cred this kid I love him but he is not metal so (laughs) I cannot imagine him doing this shit. I like to think that he's so clever that he's out doing it on his own and you don't even have any idea. (laughs) That's possible. And that's uh, what most teens do is whatever they want because we can't keep track of anything. So, I mean, you could run quite an enterprise from your phone. Just saying. Yeah. So Rick is being used by several different departments, which is kind of fascinating too. So not only is it the FBI, the police, the Detroit police get involved and are encouraging him to like hang out with certain people. Curry's are one Mm -hmm. set. And mind you, this kid is also still fucking in high school, right? Mm -hmm. Very early high school if you're 14, but he's out till three o'clock in the morning, then has to be up at seven to go to class. And I'm like, it's an interesting strategy. I think my favorite was the neighbor was like, you know, no one tells that kid. No, he's up on round all night running around and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, they just think he's out partying. And then it comes home and goes to school. I mean, people see what they want to see. Right. Well, who would have thought this isn't something you would think is even an option. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so far beyond, I don't know, just common decency. I I find it really interesting because that school thing really, to me, points out how expendable he truly was. Yeah, that was the first red flag. First red flag, right? Yep. So, 
I think it becomes a little obvious that they have a rat in the organization because, you know, buys get goofed up, the police show up at inopportune moments, and it's probably more than what is statistically likely that they're going to stumble across. <laughs> right. So I think they start to turn their eyes around and Rick starts to catch some heat. And eventually Johnny finds out that it's him that's, you know, giving him up. I don't know that he finds out. I think it's always, it was always suspected, but Rick was at a house, one of the houses with another gang member. They're just hanging out. And the cat was upstairs and was like, Hey Rick, come up here. I need to show you something. And as Rick gets towards the top of the stairs, the guy walks out, pulls out a gun and shoots him in the stomach. Fairly close range. And Rick doesn't die. He's, like asking this guy to call the police air, call 911, get an ambulance. He will not. I mean, why right. would he? He shot him. So the girlfriend of the cat that shot Rick, I believe, comes in, freaks out, calls an ambulance. Yeah. In the meantime, the shooter and another person were taking Rick and putting him in a car. And Rick's like, I didn't know if they were going to take me to the hospital or if they were going to dump me somewhere to die. And they were intercepted by an ambulance that had showed up and they were able to take him to the hospital. So he did survive. You have parents, you have police, you have FBI at the hospital waiting. And I think this is when the FBI and the police really realized if he dies, they're fucked because people are going to find out that they put this Mm -hmm. underage kid in this situation. Right. So the jig seems to be up, right? But then as it becomes clear that Rick's not going to die, they're like, hold on, hold on a tick. Uh, this might play out nicely for us. Um, might work out in our favor. What we're going to want you to do is to go back and get mad because they shot you. <laughs> but knowing that this person shot him and Rick didn't turn him in should give him credibility and be trustworthy and shit, I guess, was the logic. Yeah. Right. So he built up a little bit of street cred because he survived, number one. I I would think that that's probably the majority of it. But he didn't rat Mm -hmm. people out, right? So how you would ever go upstairs again anywhere, I think, would be a difficult moment. I hope it was all ranch styles from then on. But Yeah. No, absolutely We don't get that. Mm -mm. So at the ripe old age of 15... Rick ends up going to Las Vegas to see a fight. So this is Habler and Hearns. And Hearns is kind of a Detroit's own son, right? So he's a big draw for the people that Rick runs around with. And I do love the fact that they're talking about how much like pocket money they gave him and all the other shit that they gave him. So it seems to be about three grand for tickets and hotel and whatever and pocket money right and again he's 15 they go to vegas to see this now they they talk about like all of detroit was in vegas they joke like the last person out of detroit shut off Mm -hmm. the light which i love support your people and i can't even imagine what vegas was like in the 80s i can't imagine it would have been just right they tried to make it like a family thing in the 90s at some point and that didn't go well right but uh I just imagine smut on every corner, right? People walking around naked. I don't know. I feel like it's Mardi Gras, but all the time, maybe. I don't know. I never went in the 80s. So 
the reason why they were there, other than to support this boxer, was a cat named Leon Lucas had lost a lot of money in drugs. And this money in drugs happened to be Johnny Curry's money in drugs. So to make up for that, he was like, listen, I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to get you tickets. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get you rooms. I'm going to get everything. Obviously not flights Mm -hmm. because they got out there. They got out there. There were no tickets. (laughs) There was nothing. Like he did nothing. Right, right. It just the balls. The balls? That's just like, did he think if I get them out of town, I can pack up and leave real fast? I don't know what the thought process was. I mean, they don't really discuss that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he was provided mm-hmm. a chance to get his, you know, get off our shit list opportunity. He did not take advantage. Mm-hmm. Because that money was confiscated, right? That's the idea. It was it was taken in a drug bust. It's not like he, like, just ran off with it. So, supposedly. Um, that's the story that we're given. So, yeah. I don't think it goes over what, real well. I think Johnny's pissed. So, because he's mad, again, no one's instructed to do this. No. But people who know about things, Leon Lucas's house is shot up middle of the night-ish. And Leon isn't there, so he is, you know, not taken down in the process, but somebody else is. And that's a kid named Damian Lucas, his nephew, who is 13. He is killed during this process. It's a baby. And it doesn't go over well. It's a lot of heat that's brought down on a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So this is a big catalyst for some downstream stuff. So... Rick says that he hears a phone call that Gil Hill, I think it's between Johnny Curry and Gil Hill. Correct. And Gil is instructed or offers or whatever to cover up this incident. They have somebody that they can frame. Lakeith Davis is going to be framed for this for the tidy sum of $10,000 to Gil Hill's pocket. That is the story that Rick gives us. And they do say that Johnny admitted to the payoff. Like once he was incarcerated and admitting to shit, he admitted to the payoff because it would get heat off of his group. And this is an innocent guy. He's not part of their group that I know of. He's just some rando. I don't know if they had a beef with them. Right. And Nate talks about this too, that this wasn't uncommon, that they had a really good system for framing people like to just slip a gun under your front seat or whatever it was. And then the cops be like, is that a gun under your front seat? And I'm like, how do you, at what angle? I mean, I lose my badge or like my phone under my seat and I'm like standing on my head trying to see if it's under there. Basically, I have to have another phone with a flashlight on it to see. And I'm like, how are they just like feet away going? What are that? <laughs> what I love in this instance is that I think it was Herm that was talking that name, by the way, I fucking love that name, Herm. Everything about him. Can we talk about the other FBI guy real quick? Greg Schwartz. He looks like an actor and I cannot think of who he is. But you know, you know, you've seen someone who looks just like this man. Yes. He's very scary. Yes. He always plays like bad guys. Yeah. Okay. I do know who you're talking about. I'll figure it out. Sorry, guys. Um, If you guys know who it is after watching this, please let me know (laughs) because it will drive me crazy. This is like when you have a conversation with your mom about movies and she's like, you know, that one guy who's in that one thing. Just, yeah. just me. He, okay. He wore some pants, you know. 
But Herm was saying how they gave the police all the information they had about Johnny and about what had happened because they had Mm -hmm. the information from Rick and they were trying to make sure Lakeith Davis was not convicted, but the police did not do anything with that. Well, I think they even had some wiretap stuff going on, some information from them because they were able to do whatever the FBI does to get the subpoena and and blah, blah, blah. So this is one of Mm -hmm. the little tidbits that they were able to kind of confirm. So it wasn't just Rick's story that they were kind of building this on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had more, but it turns out that the police chief at the time was later indicted in a federal probe of theft of nearly 2.6 million from a secret police fund. So maybe not everyone on the up and up here. (laughs) Me thinks not. No, <laughs> no, no. The FBI also gave the attorneys for the Keith Davis all of their information to try to help as well. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that they're like, listen, this was not the cat. So they were doing what they could to help. Mm-hmm. But was he convicted? Yes, he was. No, he wasn't. I forgot. I didn't write that. Down. <laughs> that was one of my notes. I just I was like, oh, totally a guess. Whoops. <laughs> He would <laughs> Riley take that out. Okay. <laughs> the case was ultimate. It was it was dismissed and he was released. So oh, that's right. Because that yeah. case remains unsolved. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Correct. <laughs> Way to call me out though, thanks. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh shit. Okay. So we're back to June of nineteen eighty seven, the raid on Kathy Curry's house. Where she was with someone she shouldn't have been with. Kids big pimpin'. I don't know what else to say. I'm just fascinated by this whole, like, of all of this, I'm like, how did you, how did you land that? Hopefully, uh, no, I'm not going to say It's just not that smooth. (laughs) Maybe the I think I understand where you're going, but. (laughs) (laughs) I'll not say it. I know. Maybe because she is so used to, like, smooth cats that his awkwardness was just a real turn on it's a real charmer she's like what's this bumpkin doing here all right (laughs) put some sunscreen on we're going outside (laughs) right (laughs) anyway in this raid they found laminated cards with like all of gill hill's like contacts so many contact numbers and jimmy harris's contact information who was one of his other police officer people yeah. And apparently that's not good. But I'm like, well, she was, it made sense to me that she would have it because she was the mayor's niece. And so if she needed something, it seems normal. But apparently they were like, what? Not cool, man. I do love the fact that, look, they were organized. Okay. They had a really good assistant, administrative style, like laminated stuff shit. left and right for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I too was like, wait, that's just like phone numbers and stuff. I don't, I don't know that this is the real gotcha that you think it is. I know. Did she not have a Rolodex at the time? And this was the best way to keep it with her. I'm not sure. There was a bunch of stuff redacted. So maybe it was like for a good time call. Like it was like, (laughs) need some heroin. (laughs) Please call this guy. Call this number. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, after after all this, they decided they need to kill Rick. He's he's too much of a liability. He knows too much. So they they get Nate 
attempt part de. So Right. Yeah. Well, this is an attempt at a higher level, right? So at first it was Johnny and them, and now it's like, listen, the government wants you gone. And they're going to hire Nate to do it. And he says that he was hired to do it. Yeah. And he likes, I mean, he makes it sound like, if you were on my list, you were dead. But this is a direct, this flies right in the face of that when he was like, well, we botched it. And I was like, oh. Like, were these the early days, Nate? Was this the late days? <laughs> was this like a last minute thing? You didn't have time to prepare. And so, right. Yeah. You were on your way to another killing. You were just trying to work this in. <laughs> the execution yeah. didn't go off without a hitch. Yeah. 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 They tried. They tried. They were driving around. Rick and his peep were in a convertible sports car of some sort Mm -hmm. and a van rolls up and it cracks the door and Rick saw it and he knew and he knew and he was like hit it gun it whatever he said run the light and uh, Nate was able to get a couple shots off Mm -hmm. into the car before his gun jammed right by then they had driven off I mean you got to take care of your equipment you got to clean that you've got to keep it up or it's not going to work for you Nate you've got to take care of that shit maybe there's an oil that you apply I don't know sure I've never cleaned a gun haven't either but I know mm. anytime John shoots his guns like at a range or something he immediately comes home and cleans them it's like a religion boy isn't it (laughs) (laughs) so Rick survives he is at this time cut loose from the FBI. Oh, he's ghosted by the FBI. They're like, right. Just quit calling. No more dates, no more flowers. <laughs> Unacceptable. Right. You've served your usefulness. We've had our fill of you. Now be gone. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Bye. But weirdly enough, his schooling didn't pan out probably because he was so tired and he did what he knew. So he became a dealer. Mm-hmm. He's described as being a weight man. So I think that he had some credibility. He was able to get some connections with some people in Miami to move some drugs up in trucks and stuff like that. So I would not say he's the smallest of dealers, but also certainly not the largest. So he's somewhere, he's a middle management in the drug running. Yeah. He's no Pablo Escobar, right? Yeah. I mean, so few are. Mm correct thankfully (laughs) right we're all we're all lucky for that so he is i don't know how they decide that they're going to target him but there's a situation where there's a sting or something like that he is in a truck they're going to be pulled over he runs out of the truck is this how you, do you have better details than that? He just like up and yoinks out of there and like runs through the neighborhood and hides. Yeah. I think what happened was he had, I think 18 kilos or something. He'd already gotten rid of 10. Mm-hmm. They just had the money. Right. They're in a car at this point. They're driving and the cops pull him over to arrest him for drugs. He's like, we don't have drugs. And he's yes. like, can we check? And he's like, absolutely. You can check my car. I've got no drugs. But there was cash. And so at that point, he had run. I think Senior, they must have been close to his house or at his house because Rick yes. Senior mm-hmm. runs out, right? Mm-hmm. Tries to grab the money. I love that he's not like, 
my kid. He's like, that's some money. Give me them dollars. <laughs> goes for the bag. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Rick Jr. runs off. They do find, obviously they find him at some point in time, but they find eight kilos that were hidden that they just are like, this is obviously yours. Mm-hmm. Which it probably was, but I thought that's a bit of a stretch. Anyway. I did too. I was like, well, I mean, we've done enough of this now that you're like, what's, how do you connect that? Is there a fingerprint? Is there a, is there like a gift bag with a tag on it? Does it have, yeah, this is for Rick Rushy Jr. written on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it seems a bit suspect, right? That very convenient that they roll up to his house. He initially gets away, but then they find him and they also mm-hmm. connect him to these druggers. Mm-hmm. Right. So he has a lawyer. Kathy's like, no, no, you don't want him. Everything will be all right. You get Edward Ball and Samuel Gardner. Was that it? I think it's Bell, but. Oh, yeah. Edward Bell. Okay. Thank you. And mm-hmm. Samuel Gardner. And uh, they will take care of you. Don't right. you worry about a thing. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's better in this case to have black lawyers. That part is said. And I'm like, okay. I mean, if it works. They're in practice together, these two dudes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. They also are in with Coleman Young. So, yes. As we know, that's not going to work out well for him. So, they didn't supply any evidence that Rick had worked for the police. The jury never heard any of that. So, it was just him being a drug dealer. Right. They almost tanked the case from the word go. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of discussion from Nate and Johnny Curry who say things like, yeah, we were supposed to go to the courthouse and all of our, like, what you normally think of drug dealer paraphernalia, right? Like, so there were all kinds of little kids with beepers and stuff. There were people in <laughs> coats. They were like, Fur you know coats, what I mean? Expensive cars. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. really playing it up. A lot of people that were known, you know what I mean? So it was quite a production to kind of play into this thing that Rick was a way bigger deal than he was. Mm -hmm. And this was something that was asked of them by the police about lots of different, you know, contacts. So there was a lot going on here to help usher Rick into prison. Yeah, they made a production. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The reporters tried to say that he was the head of the best friends gang. Okay. Let's talk about the best friends gang. I have issues with this gang. First of all, it was supposed to be one of the most brutal gangs, like murdering anyone who crossed their path, Mm -hmm. like huge dealers of heroin, lots of issues, but they're called the best friends gang. That sounds like a, my little pony cartoon. I was thinking babysitters (laughs) club. Like that's the title of one of their books. And I'm like, I mean, way to play it up, friends, I guess. <laughs> Who came up with the name? <laughs> Listen, did they let like their little brother do it? And they're like, that's cool. We'll stick with that. Yo. I mean, do you think they all had like one of those like broken heart like things yes. that fit together? That was your. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, only the head guy had the one side. Everyone else had the other side. <laughs> that's right. And that's like when you walked up to somebody on the street or whatever, you're like, who you with? And they're like, like fitting them together <laughs> fucking adorable <sighs> oh i hope none of them are alive listening to this right now because <laughs> we'll we'll go down so fast anyway i know uh, so that's clearly not true 
I'm sure they were not happy to hear that this white kid was supposedly in charge of them. They were probably like, the fuck? But during this whole trial, Nate is still trying to kill him. Like, he's <laughs> perched on top of buildings with a silencer and a scope and trying to take him out. And motherfucker was smart enough to go underneath the building. <laughs> so, again, I say to you, how good really was he that this one fucking doofus evaded him but maybe he was a mastermind and this is the proof <laughs> that's right that's uh, why nate's like oh respect yo right gotta right, respect right you. that's funny so let's talk about operation backbone sounds great okay so rick is convicted right he's mm-hmm. just gonna be in jail for forever um the mm-hmm. fbi comes to him with this thing called operation backbone and really what they're hoping to do is get rid of a bunch of corrupt Detroit police, Mary Young and Willie Volson. So specifically Jimmy Harris, who's a police officer and Coleman Young. Yeah. So, right. And they do it. So Rick, they get Rick's help. They tell Rick, if you'll help us, you can't like, get rid of your sentence, right? But what we can do is put mm-hmm. you in maybe a better situation in a federal place um, with other informants. And then also, if you come up for parole, we'd be happy to speak on your behalf, right? So he's like, nah, what have I got to lose? Right. So he introduces Mike Castro, who's an undercover FBI agent, to Kathy, as says it was his supplier from Miami. She's like, hells yeah, back in the game. Because all of her people keep going to prison. Does she think maybe she's the common denominator here? Not sure. Possibly. So the FBI invited Willie Volson, Kathy's dad, also the mayor's brother, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Harris. Sorry, I cannot read my writing, you guys. Jimmy Harris to Miami to negotiate a deal. Um, it was on camera. They showed some of it. Mm-hmm. doesn't look good for them. They're willing to supply cops and protection to get these drugs up to the city. They admit to having police officers on the payroll that will do this and make sure they can sell them drugs or whatever. And mm-hmm. they agree to a price to do it. Why would they still trust Rick? I don't understand that. Kathy. Yeah, because it would have been Kathy who trusted him and then they trusted Kathy, right? So she, he, Rick gave the information to Kathy, but he Mm -hmm. was at that point getting drugs. He had been getting drugs from Miami. And so she knew he was getting drugs from Miami and distributing them in Detroit. And so she probably just assumed this was the information and wanted to get back in the game. So we think that he is, he and then Rick is unaware that his lawyers that were also supplied by Kathy, because at some point (laughs) there's, somebody's got to figure this out that they're out to get him and maybe he shouldn't be hanging out with them anymore. Like, he I don't know. It just seems real really well funny. Though, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm like, how did this keep going after he was already in prison? Like, it's just fascinating to me that they were like, you know, who's a great hookup for these people, this guy that we already put in jail for this. <laughs> yeah. That we intentionally made sure he went to prison for Right. He'll surely help us. Yeah. Oh, so, well, and maybe he sold it like, okay, I'm in here forever. I'm going to need your help. 
I'm going to, if you, you know, like maybe he was supposed to get a cut of it as well by giving her the information. He I mean, possibly, I don't know. surely. Yeah. I mean, we know that he had family and stuff on the outside, so maybe that's what it was, but it was just really weird. Like, could we talk about the motivation for why this was, why I this don't was know. a thing? I just think it's really funny. So. Right. But they were arrested. So now you have yeah. uh, the mayor's brother and top cop arrested for this you know, this horrible shit and Coleman blames Rick for it. Of course it couldn't be, none of this could be his fault or his family's fault or the people that actually made the deals fault. It's all Rick's fault. This kid. Well, the other thing is that, you know, they still want Gil Hill too, right? So he's on tape. He says the words that they're looking for, but for whatever reason, he is not brought down with all of this. But what it does is really damage his, run for the mayor's office. Mm -hmm. So he also really blames Rick and I'm like, okay, I guess, or whatever, but also you're making bad decisions. <laughs> like, I don't right. You're making bad choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in total, 18 corrupt police officers and politicians went to prison as a result of mm -hmm. Rick's help. Gil was not one of them. No, mm. but there we are. Right. So we talked about how, Rick should have gotten parole or offered parole. He should have been brought up to a hearing or something. And in Michigan, they state every five years, you should get the offer of parole. He was in for, I think, 14 years already. Yes. Or, or longer uh, by the time he was even offered parole um, in 2003. So that was one hearing he got. Right. So it was delayed, right? He should have been offered it before now. And when it does come up, it's also a bit of a circus. So our friend Herm talks about, he was there, he was talking about how Rick was, you know, kind of essential for being able to execute Operation Backbone. And there were other people that testified on his behalf, day one right. or whatever. And then the second day, a bunch of other people come out of the woodwork to testify against him. How this is what you were talking about earlier. He was the downfall of all of Detroit. Mm -hmm. You know, how the crack ep epidemic really wiped everybody out, how horrible it was. And while they didn't specifically say that he did it, it was like in the same universe. It was very interesting. So there was a lot of police representation of why he should not be let out. And these are detectives um, that necessarily weren't involved with the case, but they just had heard stuff and therefore were given credibility. Right. And he said, mm -hmm. one of the cops said that the research they did before going, they were sent like newspaper articles, which most <laughs> of those had been fake, right? It was all fake news at that time. It was like a lot of just, you know, bullshit as we know, but that's what they were given to take as information before going to testify. It is really interesting, though, because some of the uh, journalists do come out and they were like, look, we did our due diligence to fact check this. Yes, there were some embellishments, but there were things like the head of the best friends gang that came from a police document or some kind of thing that the police had shared with right. the media. So they felt like they were presenting an accurate picture at the time, even though it was really sensationalized. Mm -hmm. So, but it's like, now you're like, well, obviously the police did that on purpose, but it's mm -hmm. really funny to be like, the journalists are like, look, we just, you know, we just did what our job was. I mean, it's very funny to listen to them 
kind of, yep. you know, backpedal and try to cover themselves with all of this. So, yeah, it's really unfortunate to listen to all of these people come out against him again for no real reason. Well, and one of the most infuriating things is they wrote letters to the original trial judge, who was Thomas Jackson, who was like, listen, I have no problem with this kid being let out, right? He's done his time. They send a letter to the prosecutors, Michael Duggan. Is it Duggan? Yep. He was now the mayor of the city in 2003. So the first response to the prosecutor was like, we absolutely have no problem with this caveat let out. But two weeks later, a second letter comes saying to disregard the first letter. They did not want him out. They essentially said, again, he was the downfall of the nation. Mm -hmm. They called him a notorious kingpin. They, it was signed by Michael Duggan, but actually on the paper below it was Sam Gardner, who was Mm -hmm. one of the lawyers for Rick who helped take the case. Right. So Mm -hmm. he had an in with Gil and with Coleman and was ready to keep this kid in prison for these people to keep them safe, for lack of a better word. I don't know. Right. They, They made it sound that he's still really dangerous and there's no way that he should reasonably be let out. So they deny his parole. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very sad. I think it's interesting that they talk about Kid Rock comes and speaks on Rick's behalf. So I think Kid Rock is pretty synonymous with Detroit. And I do like the fact that they point out that he came with no entourage. He just, like, came by himself. Mm-hmm. Kind of said some something to the effect of, like, Look, in a different circumstance, this could have been me. I really identify with what he grew up with and and how he came up in the world. And, you know, I think that this is unreasonable and he should be let go. So it wasn't really about Kid Rock himself. However, it was spun in the media in such a way that they're like, what? We're going to let White Boy Rick out and now he's going to be roadie for Kid Rock. (laughs) and like They're going to do drugs together or whatever. So it didn't play Mm -hmm. real well. Rick in the press, which is unfortunate. Right. And Kid Rock, listen, I don't like him. I don't like his music. I don't like who he is. I don't like anything about him. But in this instance, he was trying to do something good and for Mm -hmm. someone else. And it actually worked in the opposite way because they're like, oh, he just wants attention for Rick and stuff like that. So it's unfortunate that it worked out that way, but maybe he learned his lesson and just stays away from everybody because no one needs him. I'm just saying. (laughs) And wash your hair. It's fine. Thank you. You make enough money. Get some fucking shampoo. Right. Mm-hmm. So we do talk to a judge named Dana Hathaway. Mm-hmm. She is kind of using her position as judge to take a look at Rick's sentence again after the overturning or whatever you want to call it of that life or law and she feels like the sentence is in violation of Rick's eighth amendment rights. Mm -hmm. So she said, this isn't really a just sentence. It's kind of more on the cruel and unusual thing that I think is pretty familiar to people. We don't do, we don't supposedly do those kinds of sentences here. So there isn't really a reason for anybody to 
thwart her efforts here, but they do find a way to do that. Right. There's a lady named Kim Worthy. She is the prosecutor in 2015. And she comes in and blocks Judge Hathaway's resentencing of Rick Worshi Jr. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, and who's who's one of Kim's good pals? Um, that's Gil Hill. Yeah. And they just will not let this die. So those two have been linked. Um, they're in cahoots and yeah, this doesn't work out until there I think there's two things that happen. So Gil Hill passes away. Mm-hmm. And I think Kim's position starts to soften. But also, kind of interestingly, as a result of this documentary, they have Nate Kraft, who is starting to talk more about what he witnessed, what he knows, and he's starting to go public, and the documentarians are kind of pushing some of that out there. And then there really isn't a leg to stand on, so she caves and allows the resentencing to progress yeah i like that you know nate had said something along the lines of maybe they should let that boy out before i start naming names and they know who they are yeah well just name names they need to be put away regardless (laughs) yeah i mean how long do you need to be in power when you're corrupt i mean like maybe we just take care of that i mean i think the corrupt ones are the ones who want to stay in power forever (laughs) that's the point I know, but I'm just like, fine. I know, I know, I know. Probably the only good thing I've heard about Alan Dershowitz in some time says that he should be released. Alan Dershowitz jumped the shark for me, for lack of a better term. This is probably before I was ever even born or about the time when I was a kid um, with that stupid ass thing about the abuse excuse. And I'm just like, "Mm, no thanks. Mm -mm, No, but he did offer to help Rick's lawyer in this instance. Anyone that you talk to, like Johnny Curry, uh, everyone, they're like, he should, he should be out. Mm-hmm. And their perspective is this. So you have like Milton Butch Jones, who's the head of the gang, uh, head of the Best Friends gang, I think, responsible for all the heroin brought into the country, apparently, and tons of murders. He got seven years. My favorite gangsta ever, Kurt McGirt. <laughs> forgot about Kurt <laughs> I love so that. terrible. Oh, the fact that their parents named him that, it, that's unfortunate. How do you he say was, that and you're like, woo? <laughs> How do you not laugh every time you say it? I know. <laughs> he was a 16-year-old hitman and he probably became a hitman because of his name. He just got sick of it and started killing people is what I'm saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. He got 25 years. Johnny Curry got 12 years. And we know that he was clearly a bigger deal than Rick. Nate Kraft, he was a hitman who admitted to killing 30 people, got 17 years. And that's like in court admitted, like not like mm-hmm. wrote it down in a cocktail napkin somewhere. And they were like, ooh, what's this? I mean, like he really admitted it. And they're like, mm-hmm. 17 years sounds good for you. Yeah. But this this kid who was only 17 at the time, who had drugs, it was a nonviolent offender, didn't have any priors life life for you mm-hmm. no parole right it's a it's i think someone called him a political prisoner and i thought yep that's absolutely what he is at this point point. and there are some other little nuggets that happen in here right so there's a, a part where he's 
linked to a car theft ring and as far as linking I'm talking about he was looking for a car for his mom and made a couple phone calls like not heavily involved mm -hmm. but he ends up getting five years on top of his life sentence these these are not running concurrently which is pretty standard but that was another effect of some of these people just out for blood for him mm -hmm. and so once he gets out, if these things end up happening, he has to then go to Florida and pay for that half-ass crime as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So finally, June 8, 2017, Michigan Parole Board held a public hearing considering the case of Richard Worshey Jr. July 14th, 2017, the board voted 10 to 0 to grant him parole after 29 years in prison. For a nonviolent crime. For a nonviolent crime. As a juvenile. He did have... He's a <laughs> kid. Crazy. Stupid kid. Yeah. That that the police created this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so mind-boggling. He mm -hmm. did have to go to Florida and serve a sentence there starting in 2017, but he was released by July of 2020. So he, in theory, I haven't kept up with him, but should be out. He is a grandfather now. He's only seen his actual son a handful of times by the time he's released. Probably never seen his grandchild. So hopefully he's able to live out a little bit of his life in peace. I don't know. Yeah. It seems from a little bit of research that I did before I lost my internets last night. Um, Didn't pay that bill, huh? There were stupid storms here. <laughs> so <Sure>. stupid. <laughs> that he's out and about and doing some appearances and giving some talks and hopefully getting some moonays. I believe he's also suing a couple different law enforcement agencies for like a hundred million dollars for Good. some wrongful shit that they did, which I'm not opposed to in this case. He was a kid. He was a baby, a baby. Yeah. <sighs> Having kids about that age. And I think about, you know, they just don't have a lot of consequences style thinking, right? They're thinking about right now. Um, mm -hmm. They can see a little bit in the future, but they're not thinking real long term. So I can imagine that that's probably pretty consistent, you know, for people of that age group. And I'm just like, wow, I don't know. It's just, it's just really hard to think about a kid that age being held accountable for adults actions. And let's, let's put in perspective of today. Kids aren't allowed to read books that might mention anything ever. About, sure. I don't know, our history as a country, the fact that Johnny might have two dads or moms, anything, anything at all, because they are so impressionable. They couldn't possibly understand the difference between reading a book and understanding this is how some people live versus this is how I have to live right now. And they become gay. But it was okay for them to do this to that kid. It's amazing when you think about how young he was. Yeah, I mean, they were looking for a scapegoat. That's just really all that there is to this. He bucked the system for whatever reason. He was effective. And they didn't like it. So. No. Yeah, you're going to pay forever, my dude. So, um, yeah, I hope he gets out. And he's about 50 years old now. So, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Hope things go okay. Yeah. Uh, I hope he gets to live the rest of his life in peace. But. Anyway, it's a, it's a great documentary. It's a it is good. crazy fucking story. So 
go watch it if you get the chance. I can't speak to the dramatizations of it in the movies, but I'm sure they're mm-hmm. interesting as well. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a lot of the maligned women of this time, like kind of really blowing their role out of proportion and, and that kind of thing. And I, it's just something that had occurred to me this rewatching. Do you have an honorary Aaron for this? I know we've not been super consistent about it, but we're going to change that scene. Judge Dana Margaret Hathaway. Why say you? Because here's a judge who had the case dumped on her, actually looked into it, realized how wrong it was, did her due diligence, um, and, and admitted that my job isn't just to punish people, it's to make sure the punishment fits the crime, and this doesn't. Mm-hmm. So did what she could to try to rectify it. Keep in mind, it was her grandfather that called him worse than a mass murderer and put his bail at like a million, which was outrageously high in that day and age. And so she was doing her job and doing it well and trying to fix things. And uh, I appreciate her for that. She was a very small part of this documentary, but I think she deserves credit. I do too, because I picked her for the same exact reason. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of women in this. Mm -mm. And so... You know, I always like to call out women doing good things. And I think that this is definitely an example of of that. She seemed like an Aaron after my own heart, right? So I know. And I think Mm -hmm. the problem is most of the others, there was a Kevin Dietz was a TV reporter that was really also working hard to get him released and have people understand how horrible he was treated. But most of them, even after the fact, like even my friend Herm was like, I don't think we should have used him at the age of 14, but we fucking did. And he did. And so I'm like, I appreciate that you've grown some. And I appreciate that you testified on his behalf for parole and things like that. But still, Mm -hmm. you used a kid. And I can't get behind that. So I agree. I thought he did a really good job. This is Kevin, right? Mm -hmm. He did a good job, like kind of bringing it back into uh, the public's awareness, right? He just didn't let it go. Um, And I think a lot of these other people were like, well... That's all she wrote. Um, it's over with. But I think he did a good job. I even think Chris Hansen just kind of crapped out. And he kind of fell back on this, like, well, that's what was popular to say at the time. And I'm like, that's... Be better. That's lame. Yeah, mm-hmm. do better than that. So, um, but yeah, I think Dana Hathaway was a, a voice for good in this. And I appreciate that about her. So, honorary Aaron for both of us. That's pretty awesome. Yay. That is pretty yeah. awesome. All right. So I'm assuming we're not going back to God, as it were. What are we going to do next week? (laughs) Okay. So we decided to take a little foray into the world of fungi. So we're going to do Fantastic Fungi on Netflix. Mm -hmm. This is running about an hour and 22 minutes. It's a 2019 jam. And it is really interesting. I watched it yesterday and I loved it. Okay. I don't know how I feel about it. You guys, Fungus creeps me out and watching The Last of Us, which is what made me think that we should do this because it ties in with The Last of Us kind of because that's fungus. The cordyceps creeps me out so much. Like like gag reflex creeps me out. So I think think it'll be okay. Maybe I'll have to close my eyes every now and then. But it should be really interesting if nothing else because I'm I'm very anti-fungus in most things in my life. So (laughs) no mushrooms, no athlete's foot. No cordyceps. I think, you'll be, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. There's, okay. I think the usefulness extending beyond some of those things that creep you out, mm-hmm. I think you'll find some resolution there. So 
please come along with this audience and watch and comment. You can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at GoDocYourself, and we would love for you to rate, review, subscribe, certainly with words and stars to help us get to more ears and um, tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't. Let us know if you have recommendations. We'd love to hear that. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining. Yeah, we will Mm -hmm. talk at you next week then. All right. Sounds good. Later. Bye.